One day in uh, 1999, there was a, a woman named Joan Murray, an executive at Bank of America who had begun to get into skydiving, and she went on uh, a jump. It was her 36th jump, and her day uh, started off, well, depending on your perspective, um, good, because she was going to skydive. Some of you might think it started off bad. Uh, but very quickly, it started going bad and got worse. When she went to pull her ripcord, her chute did not deploy. But she had done this enough that she knew, okay, I have my backup. So she pulls that ripcord and uh, it does deploy, but because she had either gotten discombobulated because of the uh, first one not uh, deploying or because she was further down altitude wise, she began to spin and got the cords wrapped up and her second chute deflated and she hit the ground at 80 miles an hour, smashing the right side of her body, breaking bones, knocking the fillings out of her teeth, but it only got worse from there. Turns out she landed on a mound of fire ants and got stung over 200 times. So you think it's not going well, it, it would seem that none of this was going well, right? And it only got worse. Well. You, you may have guessed uh, from me just telling the story this way that uh, she did survive. She ended up in a coma for two weeks. She had multiple reconstructive surgeries. She went back to her job uh, as an executive at Bank of America. She uh, actually even went skydiving again, which maybe you don't think that's a triumph, but she certainly did. Uh, it was something that she enjoyed doing and she did again. And, and the craziness is that, uh, that the thing that seemed to make things so much worse, landing on this mound of fire ants, you know, things couldn't get worse. Well, that it was actually, she learned from her doctors later, maybe the thing that saved her life. Uh, the venom that these uh, fire ants deploy when they sting uh, stimulated her nervous system and kept her heart beating. And the doctors say that she probably wouldn't have lived if it hadn't been for all those fire ant stings. I mean, just this crazy story told very quickly about tragedy turning into triumph. We have this story of, of David told very quickly in one chapter, uh, a story of tragedy turning into triumph. And, uh, and as, even though it's told very quickly, um, it communicates something that, one, took place over a long period of time, and two, is, is indicative of God's work in the lives of his people throughout history. And there is great encouragement here. Encouragement with the sovereignty of God. And, and it starts off in, in great tragedy. So we, we had selected verses read. Just let me give just very quick what's going on here. Uh, David has been spared in chapter 29, which we did skip, uh, this incredible dilemma that he was in uh, from, from running from and finding uh, protection from Saul, who was out to kill him. And then he's in this moment where he, he's actually put in a position to fight against his own people, who he's anointed to be king of, but isn't yet king. Uh, is he going to go to battle against his own people? Is he going to fight with their enemies, the Philistines? Is he going to uh, what's going to happen here? Well, God delivers by essentially having some of the uh, Philistine leaders saying, nope, this isn't happening. David's not going with us. And they remember some of who he is and some of what the Lord has said about who he is and his role. And they know that he's already killed Goliath. And so they send him home and he goes back to this city, Ziklag. This is the city that this Philistine leader Achish has given him. Uh, and they return and it's been destroyed. 
and their families have been uh, taken away. Uh, all their positions, all their family. I mean, this is, this is a horrible situation. Things were bad already. They were on the run. They were in exile. And, and then the, the, the place that they have in exile is destroyed and their families are taken away. What, what seems like couldn't, couldn't have gotten worse for David and his men, it, it gets worse, right? But then we find God's provision. David seeks the Lord. He gets a word from the Lord. Go and seek to rescue them uh, in this, uh, this really difficult uh, challenge to go find the Amalekites who have, who have taken their families and their possessions and destroyed their city. And they come across this Egyptian fellow. This is one of the verses that... Um, that should have had read in verse 11, they come across this Egyptian in the middle of this open country. He's been abandoned by his Amalekite master, left to die because he had gotten sick. And it is he who leads them to, uh, to the Amalekites to be able to be successful in this journey. They, they, they win the battle. They don't lose any of their possessions or their family. And they come back and they have the spoils that they're able to distribute among their people and their friends and other leaders uh, in Judah. Uh, it ends in triumph. And we see in this very quick story, we see God's sovereignty at play. We see him in control. This is just written all across First and Second Samuel, but it's written all across Scripture that the Lord is in control. He is sovereign. He is the one who is, is in control of the whole story. Not just the story that we tell, but the story that actually happens. And so we'll look here at God's sovereignty, and then we'll look at um, David's response. And, it, and it's helpful to note, uh, we've looked at some of David's sin, and we, we haven't gotten to some of his greater sin that is yet to come. So David often gets it wrong, but here he gets it right. There, there are also a lot of moments where David gets it right. Uh, and and it's helpful for us to know as we read Old Testament narratives that just because it happened doesn't mean that it's good, right? Just because the heroes of the Old Testament, God's people, do something doesn't mean it's right. Often it's not. But the story is that God is using broken and sinful and even rebellious people against him to accomplish his purposes. David is an incredible example of that. Here we find, though, that David gets it right. Um, let me pray for us and we'll take a look at the sovereignty of God and David's response. Lord, open our hearts and minds to the truth and beauty of your sovereignty that we may find hope for the triumph to come. Regardless of whether we're sitting in tragedy or joy or comfort or triumph now, that we know that because you are in control, triumph will come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The sovereignty of God, we just see it's, it's pasted all over this, uh, this book. It's pasted all over this chapter. It just happened, I mentioned in 29, that God sovereignly delivered David out of this incredible dilemma that we didn't know how it was going to end. And, uh, and he provides for him. And he's sent back. He and his people are sent back. Uh, and they find themselves in this tragedy. And yet even then we see God is working. And so he's providing for his people. That's part of including the tragedy here is that we, we know that the overarching story is, is God's work, is God uh, accomplishing the, the triumph. And, and we do know that even this chapter, as quickly as we can read it, uh, happened over a much longer period of time. And we know that there's, it's a part of a much, much, much larger story that, that has tragedy in the beginning and triumph that is yet to come. 
triumph that we're looking forward to. So we're, we're putting things in perspective here, but this is a small picture of it. Uh, God is directing. And he directs when, when David goes to him and, and seeks uh, answers, seeks direction in verse 8, God says that he should pursue this band. God answered, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. God gives his direction through his word. Now, it's helpful for us to, to remember we're at this particular time in redemptive history where God did work in different ways. And when I say different ways, I don't mean he was a God of wrath in the Old Testament and a God of grace in the New. We, we find that he's actually a, a God of Justice, which sometimes includes wrath, and a God of grace, both in the Old and the New Testament. But the difference here is that in the Old Testament, the people of God were a nation. They were a state. They had an army, and they had civil laws, and they had rulers. And they went to battle, and they fought. And uh, that is very different now when the people of God are not a nation state, but we are the church, and we, are, we exist across uh, all nation states and all peoples. So God is working differently now, and we, we need to be reminded and understand uh, that this was the way that God was working then. And so he's also working in this particular way when he has a king of his people, that he, his word is spoken to him through uh, what at this time was known as through the, the ephod, the Urim and Thummim. We don't know exactly what that was, but we know that God used the priests to reveal truth to his people. Now we have... God's word revealed to us through his written word, through the scripture, and through the work of the spirit in Jesus Christ himself, who is described as the word. So we have the revelation of God. It comes to us in, in a different way now. But that word came to, to David in this way, and he sends him to accomplish his sovereign will. He is very clearly in control. Then we see the sovereignty of God written all over the finding of this Egyptian uh, slave. They had been abandoned and left for dead. As, as David, and we have to understand that as, as David and his men go out on this journey, uh, they really don't know where they're going. They, they've, they've been given this impossible task by the Lord to, to find the Amalekites and rescue their families. Because who knows where this, uh, this wandering band of marauders, this wandering army might be. They, they didn't have a home. They, were just, they went from place to place raiding others. And killing and murdering oftentimes. Sovereignty of God, that that's not what happened here, that they just took them and kept them alive. The, 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 the question is, are they going to find them? The sovereignty of God, they come across this Egyptian slave. And verses 11 through 15, this good chunk of the story, are committed to the story of this Egyptian being found, being cared for, and leading them uh, along the way. That this nobody person in the middle of nowhere is central to God's story. This is a reminder for us that we've already seen uh, as we've jumped back into 1 Samuel that he so often uses mundane, ordinary people and situations to accomplish his purposes. That he doesn't just use the Davids, the kings, uh, the mighty, the, the accomplished. He uses everyday people to accomplish his purposes. That's encouraging for us that we, no matter where we are, or what we're, we're doing, we have the opportunity and the privilege to be a part of God's plans in this world. We're invited, in fact, to be a part of it. And sometimes in mundane ways of just seeking him in ordinary life. He is in control. And then we find the sovereignty of God at work in this miraculous defeat that 
we see in verse 17, the army of God, the people of God, they go out and they find success. They're in this battle from, uh, from twilight to twilight to, to dusk the next day. It's either two full days or, uh, or 24 hours. It's a long period of time, and, uh, and, and they are successful. And I've noted, I, I, I've noted over the last few weeks that um, there, there are questions here. We're going to have questions about this idea of them striking them down, Right? Um, and, and, and let me encourage you, if, this is, uh, if these bring up doubts or real questions about God, that uh, we're not able to fully cover them in a sermon on Sunday morning, but we're here in this Eastertide time, this liturgical part of the calendar where we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And, uh, and, and let me encourage you that this is also a part of the story. And where there are questions or doubts, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, these are things to engage on and, and to talk about. And I'd love to sit with you and talk about it. There are lots of good resources. I, I regularly mention The Reason for God is a book to, to go to that has reasons to doubt Christianity and addresses those. This particular question is uh, addressed in detail in a book called Is God a Moral Monster? Uh, by Copen. That might be the question that you're asking right now. Um, and we've talked about the fact that, that the judgment of God is his justice being poured out on uh, those that deserve it, which actually includes all of us. That's part of the gospel, right? But the Amalekites have already been clearly indicated that they deserve the judgment of God. They, they have uh, rebelled and murdered and killed and slaughtered others. We know that from Deuteronomy. We know that from other parts of uh, 1 Samuel. And here is the judgment of God brought forward in time. Uh, one more resource, uh, Rebecca McLaughlin has written a book called Confronting Christianity, uh, questions that people bring to confront Christianity, and she addresses those. It's a, a, another good resource. But in, engage on these things uh, because they do matter. We are, we are saying that this story is real and true, that it's a part of a bigger story that is real and true that includes the resurrection. Let's engage on these significant issues. But what we find here is that in the midst of this, in the midst of that judgment, God is actually providing for his people. He's bringing justice to bear. He is giving them success. And so uh, they, they are doing, God is also doing this in a miraculous way. We, we see in verse 17 where he's striking them down. They, they strike them all down except for the few that get away. And the few that get away on camels, the number is 400. And, and it seems like a side note, Right. And the indication here is that the army was much, much, much larger than that. David, the group that he has with him is 400. This is a miraculous deliverance of the Lord. That they would come upon them when they're in verse 15, we see, I'm sorry, verse 16. They're basically having a party at their success, right? Sovereignty of God working to provide for David and his men. David notes this reality in verse 23. He says that all that they have here is what the Lord has given us. The Lord, you'll notice in, in the printed worship guide or in most of your Bibles, when it's all caps, it's the Lord, all caps, it's the, it's the name Yahweh. It's the personal name for God. This God who says, I will be your God and you will be my people. We will be in personal relationship. Uh, this Lord has given everything they have to them. It's not that they didn't accomplish it. David's recognizing it was the Lord. He has preserved us and given us, given into our hand, the band that came against us. David is recognizing this is God's. It is God's sovereignty that took them and moved them from this tragedy to triumph. We, we, we have to sit 
in this truth, the fact that God is in control, even when we're in the midst of the tragedy. And we're going to see how David does this. But there's there's a reminder for us that whether we're experiencing tragedy or whether we're experiencing triumph, or whether many of us might just kind of be experiencing what, uh, what we've talked about as what, what, one, uh, what some writers have called languishing in this, in this particular time, kind of coming out of COVID, not quite. We're, wherever we fall along those, that spectrum, though, we're seeing that God is in control, that he is sovereign. When things are not happening in the way that we would want them to happen, when decisions are made that we don't have control over, we recognize that God is sovereign. When we make mistakes, God is sovereign at every point. And there's encouragement there that we find as we see David's response. How does David respond to the sovereignty of God? We see a number of things that he does in this passage, but the first, and it's not speaking specifically as a response to the sovereignty of God, but we know that David relies upon it regularly, this truth of God being in control, so that it actually allows him in verse four, in the midst of the tragedy, to weep. To weep to the point where they don't even have the strength to weep anymore. And when you weep in light of the sovereignty of God, it's not a a, a weeping that is hopeless. And it's not a a weeping that has to be covered up. If God is not in control, if there's no promise of triumph in the end, if we are in this Easter tide time looking forward to the resurrection for us that is promised because of the resurrection of Jesus, if he's not in control, there's no real hope that that's going to happen. And then we just need to act like nothing's really wrong. That's often the way that, that we think about it. Uh, if, if something bad happens, let's not really think about it. Let's not acknowledge it. Let's not actually enter into weeping because we have to act like things are okay. Like it's not really that bad. But when we recognize and sit in the fact that God is in control, we're able to weep, but do so with hope. We're able to weep and look to a God who is able to ultimately fix it, to lead us to triumph. We know that David does this. Regularly, We have the Psalms and the Psalms are full. Many of them by David are full of weeping and a weeping that looks to God and says, what is going on and why is this happening? And yet trusting in him. We see this in Psalm 13, which I have, we've recently looked at briefly. But this is David in the midst of weeping, in the midst of tragedy. Turning to the Lord. Verse 6 here in 1 Samuel describes him strengthening himself in the, in the Lord his God. How does he do that? I think one of the ways he does that is writing the Psalms. And so that we, one of the ways that we can do that is reading the Psalms. So David says, how long, O Lord, how long, Yahweh, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. I mean, David is not only his enemies turning against him, his his own people are thinking they're going to stone him because they're so upset about what's happened. So David's getting it from all sides, and he he was crying out here. But then he says in verse 5 of Psalm 13, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. He's recognizing the promises and the truth of God. He's strengthening himself with the truth of God, with his promises. 
We have the same language, actually, earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 16. Jonathan, David's good friend, comes to David in a time of great distress and tragedy. Saul is seeking to kill him. And he strengthens David in his God by telling him the promises of God. By telling him and reminding him what Yahweh has said he will do for him, that he will provide for him. David and Jonathan in chapter 23, they know where to go in the midst of tragedy. They know where to go when things aren't right. They know where to turn. They turn to the Lord. We have this question ever before us. Sometimes it's as stark as where am I going to turn in the midst of a difficult situation. More often than not, it's, it's, we do it without thinking. In the midst of tragedy, in the midst of languishing, in the midst of our triumph, where are we turning for hope and help? We turn to ourselves often in the midst of triumph. We think that things are going well, that we accomplished it. That's what's happening with the men later on. The men who are described as wicked and worthless in verse 22, they, they think, we did this, this is ours. Those who were too tired to go with us, they don't get any of it. This is ours. They're turning to themselves here. We might turn to ourselves, but maybe in the midst of tragedy, we turn uh, to uh, ourselves. Maybe we turn just to... to, to dull it, to numb it, to alcohol or, or drugs, to just entertaining ourselves uh, away from the pain. Maybe we turn to our jobs or we turn to another person to fix us and help us and give us our hope. We just all the time are faced with decisions of where are we turning? And the call here is to turn to the Lord, to strengthen ourselves in him, because he's the one who's actually able to address our issues and questions and doubts and tragedies and pain because he's in control. And so we seek the presence of the Lord just as David did. That's the next step that he takes as he seeks God's presence. Verse 7, he does it through the high priest and the ephod, the, this direction that God has given him. We don't have that. Remember, we don't have the ephod. We don't have the high priests. And we don't have high priests or their tools because we have the great high priest now. Hebrews chapter 4 reminds us of this truth. It reminds us of, of the fact that the presence of God doesn't come through men appointed as high priests. It comes through Jesus Christ, the great high priest. Hebrews 4, 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. And here's the hope that we have. That high priest doesn't stand for us just in triumph, just when things are going well. In fact, he might sit with us more in our weakness. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. The one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So that he is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. The one who is in control is interceding for us, is inviting us into relationship with him. He is offering us himself. He is offering us his grace. The presence of God that David sought, he didn't even get what we're offered. Jesus Christ himself, Yahweh, who became a man and lived on this earth and suffered and died for us who was rejected and betrayed, who went hungry and thirsty, who was tortured and ultimately killed, sympathizes with us in the midst of our tragedy and our weaknesses for the hope of what is to come. 
so that we can look and recognize that everything we have is from him. That we can say with David that to these worthless and wicked men who think this is all for me, this is all something I earned. No, no, we don't deserve any of it. This is the Lord's. And so we can be generous with others. We can remember the same truth as Paul tells us. What do you have that you did not receive? It's all from him. This is the gospel. Every gift that we have, in particular, the presence of God, is something that he offers to give us. It's not something that we deserve. We do not deserve it. That's the good news of the gospel, that we get what we don't deserve. Because what we deserve is actually that judgment and that justice poured out upon us. But what we get instead is it poured out upon Jesus so that his body is broken and that his blood is poured out so that we might have him, have his presence. And all of this is hopeful and certain and true because he is sovereign, because he's in control. If he's not in control, then that promise of the resurrection, his resurrection, meaning our resurrection and our hope and our redemption and our being drawn into his family and being his sons and daughters, receiving those gifts and those promises... There's no hope that that will actually be true if he's not in control, if he's not sovereign. Then it's just a wish. But what we find throughout Scripture is he's in control. And he's accomplishing for us hopeful promises, hopeful work that lead ultimately to our redemption, to our resurrection, to our being brought up into his arms as his family, as his children, that he might lavish upon us His grace and his love and his care that his sovereignty is working for you and for me.